live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life. I wanted to live deep and suck all the marrow of life. That was Henry David Thoreau's statement of intention as to why he ventured to live at that little cabin on the edge of Walden's Pond for more than two years. Greetings and welcome to an Odyssey in Territory. I'm your grateful host, Dan Riley. If listening, please follow me on your podcast hosting site. And if watching on YouTube, please like, comment, share, and most importantly, please subscribe to this channel. Thoreau chronicled his experience in the woods with his famous book on Walden's Pond. Like many writers of that period, Thoreau's fame as an author came only after he, after he died. Nonetheless, he was still highly influential with many of the luminaries that followed him. Leo Tolstoy, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King are but three. Before I get into the practical and applicable lessons we can learn from Thoreau's experiment, here are some little-known facts about what inspired New England's most famous recluse. When we think about this country's stain of slavery, we reflexively think about the southern states. We think slavery was exclusively a southern problem. But that wouldn't be true. The New England states, in addition to other parts of the North, also engaged in this reprehensible practice. In fact, it wasn't until 1783 that Massachusetts abolished slavery. Thoreau and his contemporaries were acutely aware of the Bay State's dark past and knew all too well of the horror stories that accompanied them. Breister Freeman was a black man. He was also a slave, owned for 30 years by John Cummings, a prominent doctor from Concord. But he was also a soldier in the Revolutionary War, who completed three separate tours of duties. Upon, upon con, uh, concluding his final tour in 1779, he self-emancipated and declared his last name as Freeman on his military papers. Most enslaved black soldiers at the time, however, took the last name of their owners, the understanding being if they were wounded or captured, their owner would come to their aid. After all, it was the owner's right to protect and secure their property. Repudiating the name Cumming and claiming to be a free man was a risky and courageous move by Breister. He could never prove his freedom outside of Concord, and of course, he realized he would never be permitted, permitted to assimilate into the Concord community. So what Breister did is pool his resources with another black comrade from the war and bought an acre of land in an undesirable part of Concord, Walden's Wood. Undesirable because the soil was so sandy it would yield few agricultural products. After Massachusetts abolished slavery, Walden Woods became a place and ultimately a community that many former slaves made home. Breister's sister, Zilpah White, was one of them. She moved into a one-room house at the edge of what later became Thoreau's Beanfield and made her living by weaving linens and making brooms. It was a hard life. She endured constant racism and harassment. At one point, in 1813, arsonists burned her house down, but she rebuilt and went on to live in the woods until she died well into her 80s. By the time Thoreau began his experiment in 1845, Breister and Zilpah were long dead, and the other black settlers were long gone, 
With the sandy soil, fierce winters, and constant harassment, the black settlers left in search of a better life. But their stories lingered in the community. Thoreau, as a lifelong abolitionist, was particularly inspired by the story of Zilpah White. It was with her story top of mind that Thoreau began to live deliberately at Walden's Pond in 1845. His account of those years still endure and instruct us today, almost 200 years later. Because the lessons he learned and wrote so eloquently about, although profound then, I would argue are even more profound and applicable now. Here are my five core lessons from Thoreau's solitary experiment that are exceedingly relevant today. Number one, self-discovery. In my opinion, this was the best of the benefits he gifted himself. By the time he left that cabin, he knew exactly who he was, what was important to him, what was not important to him, who was important to him, who was not important to him. He discovered his core values. And probably more significantly, like a snake, he shed himself of all those so-called values that no longer served him. Those spurious values we all accumulate the ones we allow our environment to oppose upon us. By withdrawing from society and their constituent influences, be they political, social, religious, academic, communal, communal, etc., the cultural environment lost its stranglehold on him. He stepped out of a long line of processionary caterpillars and never returned. Since the time of Thoreau's days in the woods, many serious people have been inspired by his story and have undertaken similar journeys. A psychologist and author I'm quite fond of, Walter Staples, undertook to rid himself of all the negative influences in his life for a period of two years. He watched no news, no political shows, no violent movies, no sitcoms, nothing with violence, vulgarity, or gratuitous sex. He watched only those things that consisted of the good, the clean, the pure, the powerful, and the positive. Same with reading. The only current event type reading he would do was to read the Christian Monitor once a week. As you can imagine, at the end of the two years, his life was profoundly different and infinitely better than it once was. So much so, he never went back to his old lifestyle. One of the most popular quotes from Thoreau's book is, To a philosopher, all news is gossip. And just think, all they had back then were newspapers. Could you imagine if Thoreau experienced life as we know it with, all, with a zillion television stations and all these social media outlets? He would have never came out of the woods. All that Thoreau learned and experienced at Walden's Pond issues from and could be considered a subset of self-discovery. That said, here's number two, self-reliance. The cabin he lived in, he actually built himself. He cut the trees down. He had to learn carpentry skills, agricultural skills. He grew or hunted for his food, the food he ate. He had to develop ways to stay warm in the brutal New England winters. He mended his own clothes and learned the many, and learned the many other skills he needed to live functionally in the woods. He discovered resources and capabilities within himself he never knew he possessed. Of all the transcendentalists, Emerson wrote the definitive prose on self-reliance, but Thoreau displayed the definitive example. Number three, conquering time. 
recognizing the only time is now. He endured sufficient criticism from the intellectual elites of his day, including his mentor, Mr. Emerson, for wasting so much time in the woods. On a typical day, he would spend about four hours in nature, hiking, excavating. He loved to look for Indian arrowheads, swimming in the rivers and ponds, studying the trees, plants, animals, insects, and the like. Emerson once told Thoreau, if God wanted you to spend so much time in nature, he would have made you a polywog. His critics often fail to note that he also spent about four hours each day reading and writing, reflecting on his thoughts and what he had learned while out in nature. Seize time by the forelock, now or never. You must live in the present, launch yourself on every wave, find your eternity in the moment. Fools stand on their island of opportunities and look toward other lands. There is no other land. There is no other life but this or the like of this. There is no world for the penitent and regretful. Number four, recognizing nature as an elixir. I think it is fair to say that there is no other American author more associated with nature than Thoreau. If we look at all the wall posters in offices, the internet banners and memes, we constantly see nature being heralded as a great anecdote to the unhealthy aspects of today's fast-paced lifestyle. If not an antidote, at least a balancing influence. Yet as deep into nature as most people get is just a flight of fancy. Getting out into nature is easy to do. But guess what? It's even easier not to do. It takes some effort, planning, discipline, and most importantly, stick-to-itiveness. Once the effort is made to get to the sea, the river, the forest, or the woods, and we step out of the car, it might smell great. But absent is the instant dopamine hit we've all become accustomed to. As pleasant as the outdoors might be, nature doesn't give us a thumbs up or send us a heart emoji. We can't gift, we can't be gifted nature by the algorithms or Instagram or Snapchat. So after 20 minutes in the natural world, the average person is disoriented, being disconnected from the hyperstimulation of the virtual world they have habituated. They say, okay, this was great. Time to get back to the real world. <laughs> no, no, they are in the real world. They are living upside down. Thoreau wrote, I think that I cannot preserve my health and spirits unless I spend four hours a day at least, and it's commonly more than that, sauntering through the woods and over the hills and, and fields, absolutely free from all worldly engagements. I regard man as an inhabitant or part and parcel of nature rather than a member of society. Whatever our pursuits or professions are, we can substantially improve our results in those areas by disciplining ourselves to spend some significant time in nature. And this is important while being disconnected from technology. Does anyone believe Thoreau would have been the author he was if he didn't spend four hours with the polywogs? And number five, I call this Thoreau's greatest discovery. He often preached and wrote of simplicity, simplicity, simplicity as a way to find a better life. And that's exactly what he did for his two plus years on Walden's Pond. He simplified his life to little more than the bare essentials 
And here was his greatest discovery in Thoreau's own words. If one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. He will put something behind, will pass an invisible boundary, new, universal, and more liberal laws will begin to establish themselves around and within him. Or the old laws will begin to expand and be interpreted in his favor in a more liberal sense. And he will live with the license of a higher order of beings. There you have it. Five great discoveries from civil disobedience. And for today and my part, that's all there is. If you are listening, please follow me on your podcasting hosting site. If you are watching on YouTube, please like, comment, share, and most of all, please subscribe. This is Dan Riley taking you on an odyssey into Oregon. Until next time, from sail away from the safe harbor and catch the trade winds in your sail. We're on the move now.